Good afternoon and welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. I'm Chris Reese, your host for today, and we're also joined by Helen Phillips, who is our co-host. Today we're going to be inspired by the Volunteers of America Veterans Program. If you're saddened and sickened by the way we treat our veterans, then please join us today as we hear the inspiring and transformative programs being offered by the Greater New Orleans Volunteers of America. Uh, Our guests today include their Chief Executive Officer, Jim LeBlanc, and the Program Director for the Veterans Program, um, and Minister Melissa Haley. And we're going to get an inside look at their veteran services and how they're making a real difference in people's lives. The Volunteers of America have developed programs that support veterans and their families on every level, including homelessness, mental health issues, substance abuse, unemployment, and just plain losing faith in themselves and life. So um, they'll be on very shortly, and I'm going to turn it over now to Helen, who's going to share with us the news of the inner revolution. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much, and welcome to all of our listeners, and a big welcome to Jim LeBlanc and, and Melissa Haley. We're so grateful that you're coming on in just a few minutes. We have some a lot of very upsetting news this week, which I'm not going to comment on further. Uh, But we do still have some great, exciting news that's happening. Um, One article sent in by our listener, Anne, um, was, let's see where the title is. Can you be pro-life? Can you be a pro-life feminist? The Women's March on Washington offered some insights. And this was on Vox. And it's a very, very interesting article. If you if you haven't looked at it, you really ought to. And it's talking about how the pro-life feminists, as they're called, um, were at first co-sponsors of the uh, Women's March on Washington. And then there was a big outrage by the pro-choice uh, sponsors that they did not want the pro-life sponsors to be part of it because... They said inclusivity doesn't have to include people who are trying to damage you. So, you know, the, the innerrevolution.org is, is going to be hosting a very powerful conversation uh, in a couple of months. And this, this just really touched us, this article, because it's exactly what we're talking about. The, the event that we're having is going to be April 8th from uh, 10 to 1, and you can contact me at uh, helen at the innerrevolution.org. And the title of the event that we're going to have is Revolutionizing the Abortion Conversation, a giant step toward the unity we desperately need. So we're really inviting everybody that's listening to come to that because it's such a manifestation of what's going on in our country right now. That, that the pro-life people were uninvited by the pro-choice people. And it's so difficult to have a real conversation um, in the two groups. So we're, we really want to encourage everybody to do that, to open your minds and open your hearts and have a conversation with people that you don't believe you agree with. 
And this article is talking about that. It's talking about the new uh, the new wave feminists, and and this also talking about Christina Hernandez, who is the director of communications for Students for Life of America, which is a student organization that tries to the idea of showing compassion for the women who have abortion, but also um, trying to help women believe that they can avoid having an abortion. One of the things that I liked about this article is that they're discussing how our society is not supportive of women with children and that that's one of the main things that they need to fight, that we need to fight for rather than just fighting for the right for abortion. We need to fight for the right to have women's uh, lives supported in every way, including if they decide to have children. So it's a very contentious thing. I understand that, but it's a it's a great article, and it is trying to show that that there is this new movement, especially with millennials, who are not just trying to scare people out of having abortions, but trying to talk to them about there are different choices in a in a more positive way. Okay, moving right along, there's another article uh, someone sent us. Lizzie sent us from Facebook that's talking about the first paralyzed human treated with stem cells has now got function in his upper body. And we, we have someone in the interrevolution.org who was paralyzed in a car wreck many years ago. And I just thought about you, Bob, when I when I saw this article. And the, it's so exciting. This guy was paralyzed from his neck down. They gave him a bunch of stem cell replacement. I don't know the, the whole procedure. And within a few weeks, he was able to move his arms, and he went from becoming completely dependent to being able to live independently. They have no idea whether he will continue to progress, but that's a very, very exciting uh, new development in the medical world. And then there were two articles, uh, one from GQ called School, uh, The Concussion Diaries, One High School Football Player's Secret Struggle with CTE, um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is the you know the brain disorder that happens from concussions in football. And I read this very long article. It, it was just heartbreaking about this guy who quit playing high, uh, football when he in his first few months of his senior year. So he wasn't even 18 years old yet, and he quit playing football, and he still got CTE. And that just just mortified me. And uh, he ended up killing himself just like Junior Seau and and a, a bunch of other people have by shooting himself in the chest because he did not want his brain to be destroyed so that it could uh, go to research. And yes, he did have CTE. So that was so, so sad and just such a call to awareness that you don't have to play, you know, major league football in order to get CTE and people really ought to be uh, talking to your kids about it and really being aware that it's, it's something that is dangerous, even at the high school level. And there has been some research that says, you know, concussions can cause CTE even at the little, little kids level. So there's more and more about that coming out. And that just goes along with another article from the New York times and the title was Kevin Turner's parents still watch football, but differently. And Kevin Turner was a pro 
football player who played eight leagues in the NFL and died of CTE at 46. And, you know, they're talking about their own family struggle uh, with how to, to deal, you know, how to deal with it because the dad played football and the mom was a cheerleader. And now it's gone all the way down the generations till the grandson is playing football and the granddaughter is dating a football player and, you know, that they can't talk their kids out of doing it, even though they know it may kill them. So it, it's a real dilemma and something that's so painful. And I hope that it stays in the news. And I want to end with a very sweet article. Um, let's see. This was from NPR. Spain's Robin Hood restaurant charges the rich and feeds the poor. And it's about a restaurant that was opened in early December and is run by an 80-year-old Catholic priest named Angel Garcia Rodriguez, who everyone simply knows as Padre Angel. And he said he wanted people to be able to have a, an experience with dignity and to be treated you know, like every other human being. And so you have to make reservations. And if you're, if you can pay for it, you pay regular prices. And if you can't pay for it, you eat free and you can bring your own food. You can sing there. You can listen to the, um, you know, you can have free Wi-Fi, and it just sounds like such a lovely experience. And some of the staff members from some of the most fancy restaurants in Madrid um, offer their services there for, for free. And they say that it's one of the best experiences they've ever had in their lives is, is doing this. So I just thought it was a wonderful article and a, another very hopeful thing about humanity. So that's the news that's fit to print. And there's plenty that isn't fit to print and is printed anyway. So keep up the interrevolutionary work around the world. And I'd now like to welcome Jim LeBlanc, the CEO of the uh, Greater New Orleans Volunteers of America, and Melissa Haley, who is one of the program directors for the Veterans Program. Welcome to our show today. Hello, nice how to you meet. doing? Hello, how are you? Great, great. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your busy schedules and uh, this is even after hours, I have to tell everybody, because they're, they're in New Orleans, so they're not just taking time out of their busy schedule, but they are working after hours to, to be with us today. We're so, happy to do that. And, and I want to give credit to Chris Reese, who's the co-host today, because she really found your program and, uh, and did the legwork to get you guys to come on the program so I want to, you know, give a shout out to Chris and tell her thank you so much. Um, I, I'd like to, um, I'd like to start with you, Jim, and have you tell us about how this program came into existence and why it came into existence. And I'll ask a few more questions about that. I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, we do a variety of services here in Greater New Orleans, serving not just veterans that we're going to talk about, but people struggling with addiction, folks uh, handling uh, chronic mental illness. We also work a great deal with people with intellectual disabilities, uh, children who we mentor because a parent is in prison, uh, and and all the way down over to the other end of the age spectrum. We do a lot of uh, services with seniors, and um, but but. 
before Hurricane Katrina and since, we've really seen um, a swelling of the need for services to our veterans. And we've been providing that service in a variety of ways, both residential programs that we operate as well as what we would call outpatient or going out into the field to to find veterans and work with them. But the specific uh, catalyst, I believe, not for the program, but for the success that Melissa and her staff created was uh, goes back to June of 2014. And that uh, I hope I have that year right. Yeah, uh, Mayor uh, Mitch Landrieu, the mayor of the city, called me and one other nonprofit uh, in town, and he must have had fifteen to twenty representatives of the various armed forces in New Orleans. And the mayor said, "Listen, uh, President Barack Obama has set a goal." of having uh, to end veterans' homelessness by the end of 2015. And Mitch, our our mayor, who thinks big, he said, I want to end it by the end of 2014. Wow. And, and I know. And, and, yeah, I thought the same thing. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. And, 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 of course, he's looking at the other nonprofit and myself, and I, you know, and I thought, oh, I think, uh, I think we're going to have our work cut out for us. Uh, but it's been amazing, amazing just by, the, by having that focus. And the mayor, I thought, was really bright, not just in bringing Volunteers of America into it, but to have the armed forces because they help do a lot of identification of homeless veterans on the streets and going out with us and our staff to, to find folks. And we basically came up with a number, a point in time number of veterans that were homeless in the city and Volunteers of America said, we're going to get this number down to zero. And by by God and by the grace of God and by the hard work of Melissa and her staff and, and other organizations, but we, I got to say, we were the prime movers. Um, by the end of December 2014, that number had been diminished to zero. Wow. Now, yeah, I mean, it's really amazing, and, and we're all really proud of that, and I know Melissa can speak much better to the details, and she's also going to tell you that um, we, 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 we placed those folks into housing. You know, the idea was to let's get them in housing first and get them into their own housing, and we know that when we got that number to zero, the next day there was going to be another homeless veteran, so we, we weren't kidding ourselves about that, but the best part was not just getting those veterans into housing, but we created a process to ensure that as new vets came on and and became homeless, we had a process to get those folks into permanent housing as quickly as possible. Jim, one of the features of your program that I was so impacted by when I first heard this on National Public Radio is that you... uh, came up with a new model of bringing in the veterans. You know, the old model was that people have to sober up before they can get a bed. And of course, you know, it's such a tragedy that so many veterans are coming back with a variety of addictions and alcoholism. And I understand that you folks are finding them a place to live and that's going to support them to get sober. Could you speak to that and what it was like to change the social worker model and, um, and uh, challenges in that. 
I'd be happy to. And I'm going to speak about it in the broad uh, terms, but really I'm going to lean on Melissa to, to, to fill in a lot of the gaps that I, that I will leave. But this, is a, a, this has been a national model uh, for working with various populations, and it's called Housing First. And, 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 but it's been working in other parts of the country with, uh, with folks struggling with mental illness or people on the streets with addictive disorders. And the whole idea was, and you just, you just put the nail on, the, on it, uh, was, uh, was that in the past we would say, oh, well, let's take care of this and we'll go into a transitional place and then we'll take care of that. And, and the whole housing first model is just what it says is, wait a second. Let's put this man or this woman in their own place with their own bed, with their own refrigerator, and then we'll wrap services around them so that they have a better chance of success in terms of, of staying um, productive and not becoming homeless again. And it's, you know, you mentioned the word, uh, how did we change the, the social work mindset? I tell you what, and this group down here, that was not a, that's the social work mindset to begin with, is we go where people are and we do what they need. And our folks saw that very quickly that, you know, we need to get people in the permanent housing. And, uh, and you know what, it works. And again, we were just another, another part of the country that tried it, in, in our case, specifically with veterans, and it worked very, very well. I'd thank like you. to, uh, yes, thank you so much. I, I'd like to uh, ask Melissa, uh, how does it work on a day-to-day basis? You know, the day in and day out functioning. What's that like? Uh, do you walk the streets to, to find people? Definitely. We have an outreach team. Uh, our outreach team goes out every day and every night. They go out on the weekends and they make and engage in relationships with individuals who are on the street and experiencing homeless. Some are veterans, some are not. Those who are not veterans, well, we also engage and try to refer them to appropriate programs, many are funded by SAMHSA, to get them into treatment or getting them into services. But for veterans, what we do, very often, uh, they are skeptical. If they're dealing with PTSD, if they have some long-term mental illness, that they they have issues uh, with the bureaucracy. They've had problems with the VA. And what I thought was just particularly uh, brilliant about this particular contract is that they utilize local providers like Volunteers of America. And we have those relationships with the mom and pop landlords, with the developers. Mostly when you're dealing with the VA, they deal with clinical issues and that's their area of expertise. But what we do is we hit the ground every day and we have those relationships. So we engage the client, the veterans who are not willing to get in service right away. And once they see us keep coming back, then they'll say, well, I, I guess they're serious about the service. And we also kind of have a little bit of a unique experience in New Orleans because many of our social workers have experienced homelessness through Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, at no fault of our own, we ended up, just like many of the veterans at no fault of their own, we ended up homeless, uh, access and resources. And for myself personally, until I knew where I was going to live, 
I could not focus on anything else, not what was going to happen the next day, close. So we were not a tough sell on the housing first, <laughs> even though <laughs> we're old school social workers. I, 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 I got it real quick. And then I, I was loving how it worked and it, and it does work. And eventually the majority engage in some type of activity, whether it's treatment, employment, and we also provide employment services for them as well to get them jobs. That sounds so, so great, Melissa. And I'm so touched to hear about the fact that many of the people such as yourself who are heading, spearheading this program have been there. You know what you're talking about. And that makes such a difference with people. If they know that you've been there, they're so much more willing to listen to you and and you get it. Um, You know, I wondered I want to back up just a minute and and talk about some of the struggles that you had in getting this program started. There must have been resistance from people uh, in the, I I don't know who, but uh, was there resistance and how did you overcome that? Well, it, it initially it was it was a different it was a mind switch. So first you have to sell the concept, and a lot of people when you were educated a certain way, it's hard to sell the contract. But then we say try it. You know, we're we're social workers, we're chained agents, and we're going to show you that it, that it works. And it was a whole lot easier because this contract was really well developed. That we actually had resources where we could pay rents, we could pay security deposits, we can help them get into the contract. Normally in the past, we would get the clients, but then we would have to scavenger for resources and everybody's fighting for the same resources. So I think the hallmark of the success was the collaboration. I mean, every week the team sat down with HUD, they sat down with the local housing authority, we sat down with the VA, we sat down with other providers every week and we had a by name list. We knew the veterans. We knew them by name. We knew, you know, what they wore, you know, what kind of bag they carried. We 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 built relationships with them. And when you're in a, a smaller community like we are, you know, California is much larger. So it's a whole lot difficult to have those relationships because you probably have 100 housing authorities, you know. So it makes it difficult to certain degrees. But the collaboration here and the relationships that were built, it wasn't like we were calling her we were calling John and John right. knew what we were doing right. and was yeah. committed to the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And so, talk to us about what that was like for you personally. I know um, sometimes there can be turf wars when you're bringing in different organizations. You know, how, how did it work? How did it flow? For me, it was the first time in in my career that I could really see myself working myself out of a job. And I loved it. You know, it was like, you know, it, it seems like poverty is a never ending thing, but we were really knocking this out, you know, but as as Jim described, that veterans become homeless every day is having that system in place, which we call functional zero, that if we identify an eligible veteran today, we can get them housed within seven days. And, and sometimes even quicker, we have actually uh, gotten a veteran house in a day where we, we saw them, we contact them, we've been looking for you, we got them in housing. Yeah. 
That's Melissa's people out there on the street finding them and and bringing them in and and putting them up. And you know, y'all mentioned earlier just about the mindset change. And you you are right. I I, uh, I think we've had a system where when people are homeless, um, if they want to come off the street, we put them in a shelter. And that that's fine. That's just that that. But that's sort of an old school approach. Mm-hmm. That then people are in shelters with other people like that, and there's no privacy, and there's no. This is my apartment, and it's just. I think it slows, or in some cases, can be counterproductive to someone ultimately getting back on their feet and being productive citizens. So, you know, just I, I admire the I admire the concept of housing first, but as Melissa and her folks talked about it, and we saw how it worked, it was just it was it's amazing. I love what you're talking about, Jim. And, you know, I have two questions for you. You know, um, Chris was asking, you know, how did it change your mindsets? I'd like to address that first. How did your own thinking, because this is, after all, inner revolutionary radio, you know, we, we want to talk about how it changed you on the inside to be part of this. And we know what you're talking about is that your programs are changing these vets on their insides and it's changing the way that HUD and John and, and, you know, all these agencies feel on the inside and look at the homeless issue on how they, the opinions that we've had, the beliefs that we've had, you know, it's all about changing that in order to change the outward manifestation. So I'd like to hear you guys talk about how it changed you on the inside. Well, for me, it changed my thinking. You know, when I, when I, to say homeless veteran to me is an oxymoron. These are people who are from this country, who have been dedicated to fight for this country. And for them to experience homelessness, it is different. And, and we, we, even the way we talk about it, we don't call them homeless people. We call them people who are experiencing homelessness because this is their community. This is their country. And we, we, it is a right, is what I believe, that everyone should have a place to live. Now, there are some challenges in other areas. In some places, rents are so high, they have housing sca- uh, scarcities, and it's difficult to access those houses. So we realize the, the barriers that some communities may have. But for me, it just it made, it, it made me believe totally that everybody, regardless of what they've been to, deserve a place to live. Amen. And and I guess uh, I would add for me, um, you know, I've been in this work a long, long time. And as a social worker myself, I always have a a belief that when good people come together uh, for the right cause, that they can make a difference. And uh, and sometimes that belief has been um, challenged a lot. You know, when you're working with various populations and maybe you don't see as much progress as we would like to see. But this just reignited my uh, belief in the ability of people to make a difference and 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 giving a, a a hand up and not a hand out to folks and just to see folks um, just just move from a under an overpass and the under the interstate into their own apartment I I just uh, 
it's it's like not only gratifying, but it's like, yeah, we we can do this. Our profession, our work, our organization, Volunteers of America, can can and does impact lives in a fundamental way. And it just for me, it was just gratifying and reinforcing um, the value of all that we do. Oh yeah, it's it's so deeply moving. I, I love what you just said that when good people come together for a cause, that they can make a difference. And That's I think, what the social workers live by. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think especially right now, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of fear and uncertainty about a, a lot of things happening, and um, supporting each other to remember that when good people come together and we're working for something that we can make a difference. And that's when we can put aside our political agendas, you know, or our particular um, issues and say, what are we working for? And this is a really important principle for us in the inner revolution. Um, myself, I, I'm also a recovering alcoholic. I was never homeless and it's been a couple of decades since I've had a drink, but the, um, you know, the whole experience of supporting people to, overcome addiction and alcoholism uh, moves me very deeply. And when I think about veterans and I think about their families, it just, you know, it rent is gut wrenching to think about the emotion that must come up about dealing with so much pain after they've given so much and risked so much. And I don't know if you have any specific stories you could share with us. I mean, we certainly want to protect people's confidentiality but if you have any stories about individuals or families that you could share with us so that we could understand the kind of transformation that happens in their lives, it would be wonderful to hear. Well, we, you know, we, we definitely appreciate the opportunity because most the, 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 the worst thing about being social work, we tend to get called to talk about bad things. So it's a great opportunity <laughs> to share great news that people are doing well. So it is it is a welcome opportunity. But, you know, we encounter, you know, from Vietnam veterans to young men out the Gulf and young women out the Gulf. And, you know, one person in particular um, was on the streets for a very long time. He had been on the streets for years and uh, his sister had been trying. He was from Maine and he had a... um, a paralyzing. He wasn't paralyzed, but he was paralyzed with pain. He couldn't function very well. He used alcohol on occasions and he was in the street. Well, he kept being engaged and kept being engaged. And then eventually he accepted services and he wasn't in housing very long before he transitioned. And he he died maybe within a year of him passing. And we received a, a note from his sister thanking us uh, for doing for her here in New Orleans what she couldn't do for her brother in Maine. It was comforting to know that there were people out there who were extended family, if you will, who she could contact to keep in touch with her brother, who we could ensure her that he had safe, sanitary, and secure housing and had a relationship with. When our clients, when they transition, it's like losing somebody in our family. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think about him and I and I have that uh, thank you card that she sent to the caseworker. I have that in uh, some place that we can keep it because we can never say thank you enough to the people who are for our country. And we can never say thank you enough to the young men and young women who willingly get out there to be change agents and help the most vulnerable people in our community. Well, that's, 
I mean, I think just to say this now, you know, we, we, the community, can't say thank you enough to your organization for putting forth this effort and um, uh, saving lives and, you know, bringing hope, bringing hope um, to space that's pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, if I can interject, uh, thank you. Uh, Congratulations on those years of sobriety. I, I'm I'm particularly um, aware of that today. I just texted a buddy of mine earlier today. Uh, he was celebrating 14 years of sobriety Aww. today, and and he's just a dear friend. But he lives he doesn't live here. He lives several hours away, and I I see him a couple of times a year. And uh, and he's always very transparent about uh, you know the struggles he's had and. Um, and 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 but but that it's and he, he wrote back and he said you know I, I couldn't believe 14 years ago that I would be in the position that I am today and he's doing extremely well but but I also know from him and I'm sure others is that it's a day to day battle and um, but anyway congratulations I, I wanted to share one other thing because I just uh, I spoke to a gentleman that we had a we had a little program the other night and one of a veteran that does live in one of our veteran uh, facilities and this besides putting people into permanent housing we also contract with the VA to provide some temporary housing for guys this is just men veterans who are in need of housing and a lot of support services and it was real interesting. This man was telling us um, it wasn't he what he isn't it's more like some of the typical vets that uh, he spent three years in the Navy. Um, he, he I don't believe he had a deployment overseas, but he um, he he came down with a, a string of bad, bad luck. He moved to New Orleans with the promise of a new job, got down here, didn't have the job had major medical problems, had to spend all the money he had saved to move. And it just had then it just went one thing after another. Poor soul had a had a stroke and he's a relatively young man. And somehow the VA's told him, go to Volunteers of America. Those guys can help you. And he's he's it's really neat because he's he's built he's rebuilding his life physically, mentally, emotionally. He he's not addicted um, and he was homeless for a brief period of time in his car but I guess I'm just sharing that because we we help people wherever they are in whatever their needs are and in his case he may not have been under those overpasses but here he was in a strange town he's been in the hospital in and out with a stroke and 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 other things and um, the only constant that's been in his corner has been volunteers of America. And uh, and we take a lot of pride in that, you know that um, that that we are there for people, thick and thin, good and bad. And uh, and he's still living with us, but he's saving his money. He's got a job, and he wants to get out into his own apartment, which is back to the housing piece. So so anyway, we we um, I just wanted to share that with y'all. The personal stories are so touching, you know, and make it and make it so real when you tell us about, you know, real people that that you have helped. Uh, I'd like to get back to the addiction piece for a moment. You know, I'm also a recovering addict and 
and many of the people in the innerrevolution.org, including our founder, are recovering alcoholics and addicts. Uh-huh. And so, so this particular, you know, your program is dear to our hearts in a very personal way because we've all had different levels of struggling to, uh, with sobriety and been, and I've worked in the addiction field myself as a marriage and family therapist. And I know how some of the programs just seem to be getting it all wrong, even though they look great on paper. And your program, you know, I love the fact that it's 24 months, first of all, because, you know, having worked in that addiction field, I know that long term, it's a long term process. Like you said, Jim, it's one day at a time for the rest of your lives. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd like to ask you, since you've been doing this now for uh, um, two and a half years or so, um, what are the statistics that you've gotten? Can you show uh, in the research that this kind of an all-inclusive program that offers people housing and that wraparound service kind of program, that it works better than the 30-day spin dries, as we used to call them, or other kinds of programs? Well, Sam Sabiris is the uh, founder. Dr. Sam Sabiris is the founder of the Housing First Concept, and he's out of New York City. And there is a lot of data available about Housing First, how that formula works first, that people have demonstrated in, in large numbers that they can better address whatever their issues are. And then additional to that, that it may not be, it's, it's in a constant process of motivational interviewing where you have to meet the clients where they are, what stage they're in, and understand that it's a vacillating thing, almost like the stages of grief. You're not, you you never get to one stage and then you're done with it. You could easily go back from contemplation to pre-contemplation to action, and then you may have a slip and then go back over. And one thing we try to emphasize is that a slip is not over. You know, a lot of people, and I, and, and some people can't relate to addiction disorder, but what I parallel it to, and especially living in New Orleans, is eating, eating disorder. Food is probably the biggest drug that we have in New Orleans. People love to come here and eat, and we have all kind of hypertension, diabetes, and all of those things. So I find when you kind of relate addiction to food, that people can get out of the arrogance of can't believe that you can use heroin or crack or what have you. But if you're somebody who's been trying to lose 10 pounds and you go to one of these restaurants, you can blow it out the water in just one second, right? But we let let you know you have one bad meal. That doesn't mean you've been all the way off the course of weight loss. You just hit it again and you try to, you know, start all over again and it is not the end of the world. So we try to remove the stigma from slips. I mean, we have NA and AA meetings uh, every day at one of our facilities during the holidays. We have marathon Marathon meetings and things that I know. And people are dedicated to the community and we respect that. And we believe in hiring people who have also addressed these addiction, which was also an issue because a lot of times law prevents, you know, if you have certain convictions, things of that nature that you can't work. But we really fought to hire these people because we know that they really are the experts because they've dealt with right. addiction in a way that we have not. And we we lend to their expertise, but Housing First has a whole lot of documentation about how it works, and it works well. You know, you know I, 
Yeah, go, go ahead, ahead, Jim. I'll, I'll say it afterwards. Go ahead. Well, just a quick story because um, about all of the supports that we make sure folks have. We do have a couple of com- apartment buildings uh, that are also specific for folks struggling with addiction, uh, some of whom are veterans, some not. It's They're called SROs, single room occupancies. And I, I've told this story a bunch of times, but uh, my wife and I had gone downtown New Orleans some years back uh, for a party. Um, and we were driving down a major thoroughfare, Canal Street, which is where one of our SROs is located. And so we're driving about quarter to 10 Saturday night and and we drive by the SRO, and there's there's a good 40 people outside in front of the SRO. And the administrator in me kicked in, and I said, by God, they're having a drug and alcohol party or something or other. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, ah. so I, I, I drove around the block, and... Uh, they, but when I got around, people were dispersing and going in the building, going into cars. So I left a message for our vice president um, on her office phone. I didn't want to bug her. And I said, what the heck was going on Saturday night at the SRO? And she called me back first thing Monday morning. And she said, Jim, you need to chill out. That was an N.A. meeting <laughs> that was breaking up. <laughs> you know, and, and I thought to myself, you know, you're in New Orleans on a Saturday night and you're struggling with an addiction. You need to have a landing place, I know. And it was nice when I realized that that was the landing place for those folks that night. And uh, and I was so proud of our people for doing that, you know. More more challenges to our own beliefs, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I I love also what you were saying about um, hiring the people that have been through the process because it's that ability to relate Yes, that creates that sense of trust, right? Especially in the textbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Helen. I you were going to say something. Well, I was just along those same lines. I know that Portugal has uh, started a program for heroin addicts in which they offer them housing and jobs within a community kind of setting, and their use rate has reduced 50 percent wow wow that is that that is powerful and it's it's the same kind of idea i think i mean i really feel like finally people are on the right path is that you don't criminalize these people for having mental illness and addiction problems you treat them just like you were saying melissa they're people who are having problems they're not labeled with these uh, negative Uh, characteristics you know they're just people who are struggling and if we treat them with dignity as we would want to be treated and have been treated perhaps then we give them a chance to see themselves as people who have gifts to offer and make contributions to our world and this goes along with you know the in the inner revolution we try to live by three principles oneness accountability and mutual support and the oneness factor we've got to start with oneness It's like we are not our brother's keeper. We are our brothers. Many of of us have been there. And if we haven't, we need to train our brains to the reality that we are alike. We are all one human race. We are all, you know, however you think of it, God's children. Uh, You know, we're all little chunks of God, however, you know, you believe. But we have to believe in that oneness and it really feels to me like your program 
does that. It, it comes from a place of oneness. And, you know, the accountability, you know, is that these people are accountable to the people that are supporting them. They're accountable to each other and they're accountable to themselves. They're accountable to society. And there is mutual support because if we're not going to have a well society unless everyone is well. Mm-hmm. You know, right. It, like we it, can't have little pockets of wellness or mental well, you know, mental health and live in a world where, where so many people around us are suffering and struggling and think that we have some little island of safety or joy because we mm-hmm. just, we don't feel joy and we don't feel happiness in our life when we're really connected through the oneness when other people are struggling. Well, and you know, um, y'all referenced, um, Something that I think cities and municipalities all over the country are struggling with, with uh, with folks that are homeless, folks that are struggling with mental illness and or addiction. Uh, oftentimes, the only thing that they, they do is put them in jail, That's right. um, which right. is just, you know, it's just the worst thing in the world. I mean, if on many levels, first off, for the individual, that's not where they belong. For the society, it's that's we don't need to have people in jail when they really need some type of treatment. And and actually, there's a local municipality down here that is looking um, at a sort of a multiple multidisciplinary approach, and they're calling it a safe haven. And it's it's copied after a a, a very successful program in San Antonio and I don't and I think it's run by the county and it's called Safe Haven and it's really designed to have a 24/7 365 a year available for folks if they're if they're if they if they've been drinking and they need that uh, help there or if they just need some real specific mental health uh, assistance it's it's again it's the it's the next iteration of meeting people where they are and giving them what they need or, or offering them what they need rather than putting them in jail which is just crazy and also you know, I would also like to say, you know, I think it's very courageous. You know, you all disclose your sobriety, but that is very courageous. The more people who tell of their struggles, more people will be able to admit that they have some. And I think a lot of times with veterans, you know, you have the alpha male, you have the machoism. So, no, I don't have mental illness. No, I don't have addiction issues. They're not willing to let it go or to be honest or straight from because they the stick with those things, even PTSD, you know, having mental illness has a very negative stereotype. And so for people, the more people who tell of their struggles and tell of how, and you can see how you overcame and doing positive things, I think it helps other people to see where they could be, you know? So the more, you know, people are willing and people, I understand why people don't disclose because as soon as you tell somebody I've been incarcerated, then they start grabbing their purses and back up and you know what I mean right I I understand but when people do are you know they're comfortable enough with who they are and they can tell of their struggles then you there is such power in testimony and I and I believe that it it definitely helps other people heal absolutely and I it, it eliminates the hierarchy you know it it 
attacks that, that well, attacks isn't a good word for it, but the more people, and I think this is one of the benefits of having celebrities and successful business people and so forth talking about their addictions and incarcerations and so forth is because it does eliminate that hierarchy. It's like, I'm not any better than you are. We're all one. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, yep. And we all have our own issues. I mean, absolutely. You, it doesn't matter. Nobody will make it out of this world without being a client. If, if, <laughs> only, for, if only for the undertaker, you're going to be a client. You're, you're going to you be know, a client. There's a human cost to war that... I don't think we as a nation have really wrapped our hearts and our minds around. And when you talk about the alpha male, um, uh, you know, veteran stereotype, I mean, when you think about what is asked of a soldier, right? I mean, how can you not go into it with uh, a very strong egoic belief that you're invincible, um, you know, how can you face that kind of fear and pain every day if you really allow yourself to feel your vulnerability? And then you come out the other end of it and you're very vulnerable. I mean, even our veterans who are not homeless, not addicted, struggle with finding jobs. You know, they struggle with, I'm not saying all veterans struggle. Uh, you know, I don't mean to make a blanket statement, but but many do struggle to come back and um, integrate back into society and find stable employment. And uh, when I first heard you speaking on national public radio, I just loved it that the conversation was being brought to such a national level so that we can acknowledge that what we're asking of our veterans and what we're expecting of them um, and what we set themselves, what we set them up, you know, in terms of a fall when they come back, like we have to own it. We have to own, this is part of us being accountable, being accountable. We have to own that this is one of the outcomes of sending people to war. Right. Well, you know, um, there's an evolving school of thought about that, that, that started with veterans and, and our national organization has been very involved with this. And, and the, the concept is moral injury. That uh, in the case of veterans, we uh, we because of the nature of, of of being a veteran and what we train them to do, they may be in a position where they have to violate their own moral standards to to do their duty in defending our country. And it, it's it's an interesting concept. And there's a there's a woman down at the te- Texas Christian University who's been working with this and has has gotten a number of others latched on to it. And I'm 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 not as familiar with it as I would like to be. But conceptually, uh, I, I can see where that makes sense. But what they're also seeing is this this applies to all of us that we've all maybe had uh, or sustained or created a moral injury. And how do you deal with that? Just going forward, be it be it as a veteran or someone who's lost all their family because of addiction or, or what have you. It's but I think we'll I think we're gonna hear more and more about that because I think it's a real human issue. 
as well as re-entry, oh, yes. as well as reentry, because when you've been in war and you've had to deal with these things, there is trauma involved automatically. So if you ask a person, "Are you traumatized?" They're gonna say, "No, nope, not traumatized." But you know that they're having encountered some of these experiences, seeing people that you care about die, people who you were right next to, having to kill somebody, having to be, you know, not being able to sleep because you hear bombs going off and things of that nature. And then for you to come back and everything is good, then somebody really is starting to challenge that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, good is relative. Let's talk more about that. Let's let's describe how you're feeling and really helping people engage. And and it's difficult, probably one of the most difficult populations to engage are female veterans, because female veterans have, you know, they've been in a places. They've been away from their families. A lot of times it's hard to get the numbers because for a man, the pinnacle of manhood could be very well to be a veteran. For, but for a lot of women, the pinnacle is motherhood. So you go yeah. to them, you say, are you a veteran? That's not at the top of their list. You know what I'm saying? You know, sure. I'm a mom, I'm a daughter, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm those kind of things. So, you know, it is is work being done and hopefully the local providers will engage more in relationships with the VA for re-entry to help develop lifestyle skills, to help people to get back to quote, quote unquote normal uh, after being in such a traumatic environment. And yes. to in, and to include trauma-informed care every step yes. of the way. Yep. Right. You know, we have to stop now, but we just want to thank you so much, Jim and Melissa. You've been wonderful guests. I could talk to you for 10 more hours, you know, and I I feel like we just got into this wonderful moral conversation about the moral injuries at the end, which I'd love to explore more. Maybe we can have you back on another time. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, that's, let's see if we can track down the the uh, woman that you were talking you know, about I'd at Texas to, Christian I'd love University. To, I'd love to introduce you all to her. She, is, she is amazing. She, you is, she her? is very yeah, good. Yeah, she yeah, is yeah. very good. You, you would much, learn a lot. Yeah. Please yeah. give us her name. And Chris, would you please tell us what we're doing next week in the last 30 seconds? Thank sure. you, Jim and Melissa. Thank uh, you all. Yeah, thank you care. so much. It's been a, been a real pleasure. Um, I just want to confirm, can you hear me right now? Yes. Okay, great. So next week, uh, our founder uh, and fabulous host, Seth Green, is going to be addressing this question. Is there an antidote to jealousy? Most of us have felt jealous. We've wanted someone else's looks, power, success, talent, money, influence, position, even their mate. And others have felt jealous of us. Jealousy hurts everybody, including those who are jealous. It directs negative energy towards its target, which can impact them emotionally and spiritually. And it sometimes turns into real damaging behavior, gossip, undermining, or even worse. Sometimes we act out of jealousy, but don't even realize it. Sometimes we're impacted by others' jealousy, but we're blind to it. Let's overcome jealousy. Our host next week, Beth Green, is going to help us see how we're going to talk about how, why, you know, why do we feel jealous? What can we do about it? How can we protect ourselves from it? And it will be a call-in show. So all of our listeners will have the advantage of Beth's uncannability to help us see ourselves and fear ourselves from behaviors that hurt us like jealousy. If you can't call in live, tune in anyway and benefit from the discussion, the experience of others. 
Thank you very much, Chris. And I, I want to just say again, thank you to all of our listeners. And thank you so much to Jim and Melissa for being on our show today. It was really a pleasure having them. Uh, they have already left, but I just want to thank them again for, for being with us. And we'll look forward to that great conversation next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.